0: It's time for Run Bandy Run, An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media.
1: Milwaukee County Medical Exam Case 1056-81. Her body is a white female, age of 30 years, received into the morgue out of 528. The t-shirt is blood-soaked and torn below the...
2: Why do we like all these gruesome stories? Abductions and assaults and murders. Like, why do we insist on knowing every last horrifying detail? It could be the adrenaline rush. But beyond that, my guess is it's a way of naming our fears, like a form of self-preservation, or you could even call it superstition. If we say the bad thing out loud, then it won't happen to us kids do this too, right? Like, they tell ghost stories after dark just to scare the crap out of each other on purpose. Because being scared is still better than being the victim. Now, it's going to be a couple episodes before we get to the murder. But again, what I'm interested in, it's not just the ghost story. It's not just the horrible, evil violence of that moment. I'm interested in everything that came before and after Christine Schultz's death and what her world and Lori Babenik's world tells us about the culture back then. Who was good and who was bad and who got to decide that stuff? Christine was a member of an exclusive community that included all the Milwaukee cops and all of their wives and their families. It was a tight-knit web. And unfortunately for Lori, when she joined the police force, that's exactly the web she found herself stuck in. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis, and this is episode two. So in the late 1970s, way before she became a convicted murderer, Lori Bambenick was a forest goddess type of bombshell who didn't want a conventional life. She graduated from high school in Milwaukee. But she wasn't going to go for a husband, a house, 2.5 kids. She was a beautiful woman who didn't want to just be beautiful. She wasn't going to be a trophy on some guy's arm. She wanted more. And then one day in 1979, she picks up the newspaper. And something historical is happening. The Milwaukee Police Department is soliciting special applications. It says right there, females and minorities are encouraged to apply. Well, she's pretty intrigued. In the late 1970s, being a lady cop sounded like a hell of a lot of fun. At least on TV. Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the police academy. That was Charlie's Angels, the TV show about three female officers who also happened to be tall, slender, and ridiculously hot. They'd become private detectives for a man named Charlie. My
0: name is Charlie.
2: Americans couldn't get enough of Charlie's Angels. Probably because they did most of their police work on yachts or in sumptuous hotels.
3: Well, thank you, Charlie.
2: The life of a lady cop sounded good to Lori. Plus, she idolized her dad, and he'd been a cop for a while. He made it sound interesting, exciting. The 70s were a new era. The feminist movement had happened. Women were asking for power and jobs that used to be only for men. So why shouldn't Lori do that, too? She even had a specific goal in mind to accomplish on the police force. She wanted to help rape victims. She knew the cops were terrible at that. Now, even though some of you might think, huh, pretty weird that Lori Bimbenek, this young woman who hates playing by the rules, is taking a job that is the rules, there was a lot that was good about becoming a police officer from Lori's perspective. Money, pension, and a meaningful job. Lori's biographer, Chris Radish, chalks it all up to youthful idealism.
0: Laurie was very naive. There's there's no doubt about it. You know, in many ways, she was still just barely past her teenage years when she entered the, the police department. And, I, you know, I guess she was borderline cocky. She was really sure of herself. She had been raised to think that she could do and be anything she wanted to be.
2: Laurie was ready to shatter the glass ceiling and have some foxy police escapades. But this wasn't Hollywood. It was Milwaukee. And in the real world, people didn't see law enforcement as a place for women at all. The Milwaukee Police Department was exactly the sort of blue-collar brotherhood you'd expect it to be.
4: Let me just take you back to 1983. In the city of Milwaukee, Harold Breyer was the police chief. He ran that department almost like a, like a czar. I mean, it was, it was
2: locked down. That was Meg Kissinger. She's a professor at Columbia University now, but she was a reporter back then. And she's talking about Chief Harold Breyer, one of the most infamous bullies in the history of American policing.
1: Of course, I can only speak for the Milwaukee Police Department. To put it quite simply, uh, we have no problems.
2: Yeah, not someone you want to get stuck next to at a party. The police presence in Milwaukee
4: was tremendous. You couldn't swing a cat without hitting a cop. There was a lot of swagger. They would wear these kind of hip boots. They almost looked like kind of Gestapo uniforms. The joke is, and it's true, people in Milwaukee don't jaywalk. Even today, there's that's still a little bit of a hangover from the Harold Breyer era because they would
2: arrest people for jaywalking. People were just afraid of the Milwaukee cops. And Breyer, too. He was an imposing guy, tall, meticulously dressed, with a post-Nixon GOP vibe. And he was stone-cold defiant if anyone questioned him about anything.
1: The Milwaukee Police Department does not intimidate. We do not harass, as has been alleged in the newspaper articles. We just maintain law and order in the community.
2: Breyer held the office for 20 years, an incredible iron-fisted run, a masterclass in oppressive tactics. Here's Stan Stoichevich, a criminologist in Milwaukee. His brother was a cop under Chief Breyer, and Stan wanted to be a cop too when he was young, but he decided to study them instead.
1: He was the traditional beat cop, kick ass, take names later, he was a big guy. A gruff personality, you know, and said all these crazy things. But, you know, former cops who loved the guy. Oh, the guy was the best thing since sliced bread. He shot and killed two people as chief. He was having lunch, and he, he was having lunch. The guy came in to rob the bar. And he said, in between bites, I just pulled out my gun and I shot him in the head. Judge, jury, and
2: executioner. That's how Chief Harold Breyer ran his department. A columnist once wrote that he was more than a person. He was an attitude, law and order personified, unbending and unchanging.
4: The um, ethos or what he was trying to put forward was law and order, a heavy hand. I believe a lot of it was racially motivated, you know, keep the black citizens in their place. I don't think it's controversial to say Harold Breyer was a racist.
1: We are one of the most segregated cities in the country. That's because we created it that way, right? And we use police to enforce that.
2: So why would a guy like Chief Harold Breyer be placing ads in the newspaper to solicit women and minorities? Well, it wasn't because he wanted to, that's for sure. The federal government was actually forcing his hand. They made it clear that if local police departments didn't start becoming more reflective of their communities, their funding was at stake. That gusher of money coming into Breyer's department for the new patrol cars and guns and all that stuff, it could get turned off if he didn't get some ladies and minorities in the door. So whether Chief Breyer liked it or not, Lori Bembenek was going to be in his police academy. And she immediately noticed that there were no hip-hugging bell-bottoms like on Charlie's Angels. She was surrounded by metal desks, littered with old cups of coffee. She was sitting on a hard bench, waiting for orders. And right away, because the cops thought Bambinic was too hard to say, she got a dumb nickname, the one that she'd have for the rest of her life. Well, during training, somebody
0: looked at her and said, Oh, look at look at her. Her eyes are as big as a deer. I'm going to call her
2: Bambi. Oh, she hated the nickname. Just absolutely hated it. Lori was a strong-willed woman, and she didn't want to be thought of as a plucky baby deer. But women were outnumbered here at the Academy. There was a sea of men, 45 of them, and 11 women. Those 11 women would become Lori's squad to be millennial about it. Tracking them down today via phone, social media, whatever, it, it was incredibly hard. But you'll be hearing from a few starting with Linda Reeves. She was in the B section. I'm in the R section, you know, alphabetical order stuff. All the women in the academy had different reasons for being there. Linda had a kid early, and she was looking for stability. But as a Black woman at the very white, very male police academy, she stuck out.
3: I was what they call a double minority. There was not that many women on the job or anybody that looked like me black or white, didn't really want to work with you because it was a male-dominated field and most of the men did not look at women as being someone who could be with them in a fight.
2: The thing is, Linda and Lori were also supposed to be just like the men. Their blue uniforms were identical to guys, except cut smaller. They were supposed to erase their typically feminine traits.
3: I remember I was standing at roll call one time and I had lipstick on. Sergeant came up to me look to your right, look to your left. Do you see anything different than there were two guys? I said, no. He said, look again. Is anybody wearing lipstick? No. Why are you wearing lipstick? All of us had to cut our hair. You couldn't have nothing going past your collar. You couldn't put it up in a bun. You couldn't put it in a ponytail. What I think they believe is to protect you from being out here on the streets and getting your hair pulled or getting in a fight and somebody grabbing your ponytail. This is the stories they were telling us why we
2: couldn't do it. Lori actually got a wig and stuffed her hair under it, so she didn't have to keep it quite as short. A lot of the women did that. Store Lori's wig in your memory bank, please. It'll turn up later. Just seeing. Anyway, Linda's point was the women had to look like men, perform like men, even in the physical training, like running and lifting, which for Lori didn't seem to be such a problem. Lori was athletic. Lori was in great shape, very strong. And Lori was a lot of fun.
1: My brother was in the recruit class with Lorenzo Bambanek in 1980.
2: Stan Storchewicz again.
1: And he used to tell me, we have to run around the track. She would beat all the guys, right? And he said that would piss off so many guys. And he said, what the hell's, you know, what's the matter with you? But that was, you know, this is a male culture.
2: Lori made waves. She wasn't demure and she wasn't quiet, like a good little girl. She spoke up to her superiors, arguing when one of them said a rape victim was asking for it. And she openly questioned why there weren't any high-ranking women in the department.
0: She was definitely a a woman who loved being her own kind of woman, and that meant being someone who was self-confident. And of course, back then, that meant you were bossy and a bitch. But Lori
2: kept her eyes on the prize. And in the summer of 1980, she made it through all the exams, and she ended up graduating sixth in her class. She hadn't just survived... She excelled. Her parents were probably excited. Her friends were impressed that she stuck with it. And with her new salary, she bought a new car, a flame orange Camaro. But when she got in the actual police force, she found that things were even weirder than they'd been in the academy.
1: According to the city charter, I am held responsible for the efficiency, and general good conduct of the department. And as the head of the department, I set policy and I set procedure.
2: You can say that again. Breyer was infamous for his rules about conduct and behavior. And we all know how Lori feels about bullies and rules. So just to give you an idea, rule number one, his cops were supposed to carry their guns with them all the time even when they were off duty. There they'd be visiting their mothers-in-law and they'd have to put their guns on top of the refrigerator so the kids wouldn't play with it. Rule number two, you weren't guaranteed your job even if you did everything right. Briar would try to kick you off the force for going to political rallies or having long sideburns. You couldn't even declare bankruptcy. He was just in your face all the time. One of his men called his police force a CIA within a CIA.
1: That was his moral code. You're a cop, you're a cop, 24 hours a day. And if you're sick, I want to make sure you're sick. So he'd send sergeants and lieutenants to visit, you know, surreptitiously sometimes, covertly. The cops used to call him iron balls.
2: Except it all seemed to be for show. Because behind the scenes, it was a very different situation. For all the bluster about upstanding conduct and by-the-book behavior, the force that Lori found herself on was kind of a shit show. For starters, the Milwaukee Police Department, which everyone knew was a boys' club, actually seemed more like a gentleman's club. And the women were all up for grabs. Well, of course, the same-sex relationships were strictly don't ask, don't tell— Here's Chris Radish.
0: They were all sleeping together. It was like the biggest ridiculous sex party in the world from the sound of it, but it was it's also true. <laughs> Talk about it. It was like an incestuous police academy. Who's next? It was like
2: spring break with guns and handcuffs. And to be fair, none of this bothered Lori that much. She was the rebel teen, right? She was up for a good time. She was young. She was single. She liked going out and drinking and flirting as much as the next gal, And it didn't seem to mean that she couldn't be a good cop at the same time. I mean, everybody was doing it. Clearly, Laurie had a high sex drive. She loved
0: physical attention. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We're empowered women now. We can enjoy sex,
2: can't we? But in 1980, the free love era hadn't trickled down to middle America. Women who flaunted their sexuality were still stigmatized. They were called sluts or worse. Maybe that's why the hookups and the way Lori was acting made her friend Linda Reeves nervous. We got along, except you know those were not somebody you want to hang out with because you knew
3: the type of life that they appeared to be leading. Because we had a thick binder of rules and regulations. It was easy to break one of those rules. So I didn't want to take the chances of getting fired and having to start all over again. That I didn't want to get caught up in the lifestyle that they were... uh, they were in. What was that lifestyle? Drinking, hanging out with these guys, you know, after work, letting their hair down. They like to look provocative in the, in the lockers.
2: You know. What does that mean? <laughs> provocative in the lockers? Well,
3: you know, you're, I, I don't know how to explain it. If, I ain't seen no room for wearing no Victoria's Secret stuff in the locker room. You Get your clothes on, you go home. <laughs> okay, I got it.
2: When Lori started walking her beat in the 2nd District, she realized pretty quickly that the cops' drunken sexcapades were nothing compared to their other indiscretions. It got weirder and darker, fast. Beyond racism, beyond discrimination, it was just disturbing.
1: I asked my brother about this. Is you wouldn't believe these crazy fucks. They're, they're doing stuff out there that's just off the charts.
2: There was just no way not to notice it. There was some super dark shit going on in the MPD, and it seemed like half the force was in on it.
1: She told me, like, rule violations
2: were in the hundreds. Timothy Meyer was a journalist in Milwaukee at the alternative newspaper, The Shepherd Express. You'll learn that Lori befriended journalists quite a bit, and they will become important to the murder story. Lori would send him a list of everything she saw as a cop.
1: Squads would park in the cemetery at night after the bars closed and sleep away three or four hours on late shift or drink in squad cops parties. walking a beat were getting free drinks at bars. Some were selling pornographic films from the trunks of their cars. They used and sold drugs. Brutal, unnecessary force on suspects. In hand. Seeing girlfriends on duty while their wives trusted they were at work. They engaged in Oral sex from prostitutes. They paid their informants with drugs.
2: This is like a Hollywood movie about a corrupt police department, a bad Hollywood movie. And what made it so unbelievable was that it was all happening under Chief Breyer's nose.
1: To put it quite simply, we have no
2: problems. Was Breyer oblivious? Or was he covering? So it would be safe to assume at this point that Lori went down for murder because she got wrapped up in some sex trafficking, drug, porn cabal of dirty cops. But really, it's just the opposite. She didn't get wrapped up in any of it. What's about to happen to Lori is way more pedestrian, which maybe makes it even more chilling. Okay, I know we've made a big thing out of Lori's looks, especially in the last episode, but there's a reason for it. Being attractive was actually one of the things that got her into so much trouble. Like this one night. This is the night that things started to get weird. There was a big messy party at a cop's house. Lori was there, of course. She was waiting in line for the bathroom when a wife of an officer lurched up to her totally drunk, slurring her words. She said, you can't let much more hang out of that t-shirt, can you? Lori shot back, why don't you go sit down before you fall over? And apparently, this woman came back with, I saw the way my husband looked at you when you walked in. Why don't you stick that badge of yours up your ass? This seems like nothing, right? A drunken little cat fight. But these things have a way of making it up the chain of command. Especially when the cops had to hear it from their wives. Looking like a supermodel is fine when you're modeling, but nobody liked Lori rubbing shoulders with their husbands. Lori got reprimanded, and then suddenly she started having problems. When she rolled up to a crime scene with a bunch of broken glass, a superior made sure she was the one to clean up the mess. Because, he said, women are good with a broom. He made her change a tire in the rain, all alone. It wasn't a big deal, but something felt wrong. It was like she was the one getting punished.
0: This
1: white male-dominated kind of profession now was being asked to what take women in, and this was a woman who was, you know, had a mouth on her and spoke up when something went wrong. Oh boy, no, 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 not in this male culture, and especially with Briar at the top.
2: I want to introduce you to one more woman from Lori's class, and this one I want you to remember because she's going to end up being bad news for Lori at every turn. Her name is Judy Zass. Judy was a brunette with shimmering, feathered hair. She was sort of chic by Milwaukee standards. She spoke French. She told Lori that she'd studied in Switzerland. Now, we did everything we could to reach Judy. sorry, you a number that has been disconnected your <laughs> oh, no, automated voice messaging system. Hey, I'm looking for Judy Zess. (sighs) We obviously couldn't reach her by phone, so we tried to send a letter to her last known address. We tried her Facebook page, but she didn't respond to any of our inquiries. Later, I found out she had a perfectly good excuse. She died in 2018. But back in the 80s, Lori and Judy became friendly. They liked going out together. And one night, not too long after the catfight at the party, they went to see a concert. A big one. The funk band Rufus and Chaka Khan. They had a few margaritas, and when they got to their seats at the show, Judy lit up a joint. It was dark. It was sweaty. uh, Who cares? And then Lori went to the bathroom. When she came back, the seats were empty. But then she saw a guy putting Judy in a headlock and leading her out the door. He looked like a plainclothes cop. At least this is Lori's version of what happened. Because when Judy got taken downtown, she apparently realized that the only way she could save herself was by selling someone else out. If these cops wanted to take down a female recruit, she'd give them one. It just wasn't going to be her. According to Lori, Judy told the cops that she herself wasn't the one smoking pot. Somebody else was smoking pot. Somebody she was sitting with. The next morning, Lori's superiors brought her in before roll call even began. They'd found a tiny butt end of a joint under her seat at a concert with like an infinitesimal amount of marijuana. But they were acting like they were making a major drug bust. The thing is, Even if Lori hadn't been smoking weed herself, they said that just knowingly being present was technically enough to fire her. Lori said she didn't smoke pot. And really, who knows? The point here is that they wanted to get rid of her any way they could. And Lori knew it was just an excuse.
0: I think there's a big difference between... Prostitution rings and pornography and drugs and mm-hmm. cops drinking and filing false reports than uh, smoking a doobie. At, right. You know, there there is a there is a bit of a difference. None of right. it's right, right if if you're not supposed to be doing it. But mm-hmm. we're, we're not always good girls, I guess. Thank God.
2: Lori hoped that was the end of it, just more intimidation. But soon she called her district station to confirm her schedule, and the bomb dropped. The captain answered, and he told her, don't bother coming in. Fired. Just like that. Like she was a seasonal waiter in a resort town, getting cut from a schedule. End of story. She felt betrayed, and she was furious. Before he hung up, though, the captain let it slip that the decision to get rid of her had come straight from the top, from Chief Briar himself. If it sounds strange that this all-powerful chief of police would be taking a personal interest in this one new recruit and her minor infractions, I get it. It seems weird until you realize what was really going on. The federal government could keep track of how many women Briar hired to be police officers, but they weren't keeping track of how many of them he fired. There was a hiring quota, but there was no key keeping them quota. It doesn't take a genius to spot the loophole.
1: As far as the uh, police department's policies and procedures are concerned, I am not going to elaborate.
2: In fact, out of the 11 female recruits who started with Lori's squad, Breyer found a way to get rid of eight of them. And Lori wasn't going to stand for that. Now, vowing vengeance on the police department, like Lori did, that's scary stuff. Cops live by the code. You never talk and you never snitch. If you don't live by that code, you might find yourself calling for help in the middle of a shootout and those calls going unanswered. The only thing as bad as snitching was going to the press. But if she wasn't a cop anymore, they couldn't tell her what to do. And she didn't care anyway. She made a pact with herself that she'd take them down. The name Lorencia Bembenic first came to
5: light in to me in August of 1980. For many years, more than thirty years, I was a reporter at the Milwaukee Journal and later. This
2: is Milwaukee, Georgia Pabst. More recently, she made a documentary about Latino immigrants to Wisconsin. Uh, Georgia's had a long career.
5: The newsroom was a bustling place, a lot of clacking, a lot of shouting across the newsroom. So this one morning, I went to the rewrite desk, and I started looking to what was going on and what was new. And I forget how I got the the news, but three women had been fired in one week. And this was like, whoa. You know, I said to myself, this is really uh, interesting because in those days, there weren't a lot of women on the police department. And with Chief Breyer being the, what shall we say, polarizing and macho man kind of chief, it was not believed that he was welcoming of women in the police department. So the fact that these three women were on the force, ha- fired in their probationary period, was a story. I believe I tried to call all the women. Lorencia Bembenik was willing to talk to me. She had been fired for, quote, untruthfulness and making a false
2: official report. After they talked on the phone, Lori strode right to the newspaper office to meet Georgia and tell her everything she knew. She was this tall blonde wearing
5: a a jogging suit. Athleisure, like today, was hot in the 80s. She came to my desk and we started talking. Her affect always seemed to be the same, which was kind of calm, just a very non-plussed attitude all the time. Every time I talked to her, it was very even keel, like, oh my gosh, you know,
2: here it is. What am I supposed to do about all this? Lori seemed calm, but there was a lot brewing underneath. Right away, Georgia realized she meant business. This wasn't just a story about recruits getting cut for petty crimes. It struck me as a
5: story you know, of the changing way that society was dealing with women and law enforcement. You want to fit in, but they make it so hard. An attractive woman who wanted to be a cop, complaining about it was a standout. And it was like a
2: flashing light, if you will a flashing light that could be used as a beacon. Lori walked out of the meeting with a sense of purpose.
0: She was like, look what happened to me and look how I was treated, and maybe it's my turn to stand up and do something about it to help all the other women.
2: Help other women, sure, but she also wanted revenge. And declaring war on a bunch of angry, ruthless, shady dudes with all kinds of guns and power, it could get dangerous. As you know, there's going to be a dead body soon. And why Christine died? It has a lot to do with Laurie serving her revenge on the police department, cold. Next time on Run Bambi Run.
1: The crowds are massive. Uh, police officers are on stage, totally nude. They
5: add perfume onto their tails so that when they pass by the customers' tables, they get a whiff of this beautiful
0: perfume and it it clings there much longer. On bad days, um, you know, I feel persecuted. It's been difficult, you know. He needed to conquer somebody and she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen and he wanted her and he had to have her.
3: I said then, you know, it's only going to be a matter of time. They're going to end up killing somebody.
2: Run, Bambi, Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Gumariatis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley-Ann Craigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon, and our archivist is Megan Shuve, Field production from Emily Files and archival audio from the CBC campsite media's executive producers are josh dean adam hoff matt Scher, and myself special thanks to executive producer kyle long and to Campside's operations team amanda brown doug slaywin alia papes and allison haney and finally thanks so much to chris radish who wrote the book run bambi run if you're enjoying this show please rate and review it on the apple podcast app thank you so much for listening